What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. This week on the Minding Wellness Podcast, I'm super excited to bring you the first of a three-part series on patient advocacy. As many of you know, that's the passionate work that I do each and every day, and I'm excited to now have joined partnership with Caribou, which is a company that is connecting healthcare advisors or patient advocates with cancer patients. So myself, along with a dozen or so others, are now working alongside Caribou to help connect those dots in patient advocacy and get the patients the help that they need and are looking for. On this first episode, I am talking to four other healthcare advisors that I am blessed to work alongside, and we will dive into healthcare advocacy, their journeys, and some of their insights in the work that they do. I hope you enjoy. All right. I am super excited to bring on a group that's super special to me, a group of ladies that I didn't know a few months ago, and now we have collaborated and come together in a really important cause and I'm just excited to bring them and their insights and their perspective and their why to what they're doing to all of you. So we are now healthcare advisors with a company called Caribou, and we will get more into to what Caribou is in another episode when I talk to the founders. But in short, we are private patient advocates coming together in a collaborative way to help a cancer population uh, navigate the muddy waters of this medical system that we are all living in. So I'm so excited to bring you the first group. We'll have a series of three podcast slash videos, uh, one with this group, one with another group, and then one with the founders. So look forward to all of those. And let's just go ahead and get started by introducing ourselves. And also, we're going to hopefully share in a concise way why we're doing the work that we're doing and the company names and, and where we're located. So I'm super excited to get started with all of you and look forward to, to sharing all of their insights. So we're going to get started with Gail. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm so happy to be here with Amy and Dana and Cheryl so that we can all learn from each other and share our, our wisdom. Uh, I'm Gail Beck. My company is Intune Health Advocates. I'm in the Chicago area. I got into this about two and a half years ago. Um, throughout, throughout my adult life, I've always experienced a lot of situations where uh, you can see where there's a need for advocacy in the healthcare system. I can remember when my twins were born almost 24 years ago when my son was in the NICU and I've never forgotten that fear that I felt and how overwhelming everything was and information just coming at me at a time when I really was not able to process it. And then helping my dad through the years with his health issues and I've just seen how important it is to have someone with you as you navigate your healthcare journey and as your emotions often take over in the situation and it, it can be hard to just think clearly and it's so helpful to have someone with you as you as you navigate it all. 
Yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love the the background of, of why you do what you do. Can you give us, and I don't think you said it, maybe you did your, your company name? In Tune Health Advocates. Okay, perfect. Just so people Thank know. You. Yeah, fantastic. All right, Cheryl, you're next. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Cheryl Sharon. I'm a registered nurse, and I um, left a career in long-term care when my parents were um, at the end of their life. And I saw that they needed the support and the guidance um, that, that I could offer. After they passed, I reflected on just how important that support and guidance and making sure that their healthcare goals and objectives were met. And that led me to open up my business called Baby Boom Health. I'm located in Durham, North Carolina. Fantastic, thank you so much, Cheryl. All right, Amy. Hi, Claudia and Dana, Gail and Cheryl. Thank you so much, Claudia, for offering us this opportunity. Um, I'm on the North Shore of Boston in Newburyport, Massachusetts. I'm a nationally certified physician assistant um, with about 20 or 20 plus years of experience. And along the way, I've um, helped family and friends navigate certain healthcare issues that have come up. I also have a daughter who's had autoimmune disease and other um, issues. Um, she was diagnosed at a young age with Graves' disease. And I found that my background as a PA was very instrumental in um, getting opinions, second opinions, and the right care for her. And along the way, I also had friends suffering with um, thyroid cancer, uh, prostate cancer, stage four uterine cancer, um, or other issues um, you know, similar to those. Um, and I found that they would leave doctor's appointments and um, not have um, their questions answered and looking for some guidance and direction. Um, my business is called North Star Health Navigation and it's in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Wonderful, thank you so much, Amy and Dana. Hi, Claudia, thank you. And it's an honor to be on a panel with these ladies. Um, so my name's Dana Hudson, I'm just outside of DC and I, the name of my company is Cancer Champions. And my journey started, I wanted to be a physician, but, but life took me off of that path. And, but I wanted to stay close to healthcare. So I spent my career in biopharma. And over the decades of working in that industry, um, during the course of that, my father was diagnosed <clears throat> excuse me, with cancer. And it just changed my perspective, Claudia. So then I saw what it was like to be on the other side of things and realized that there was a gap there there was an opportunity to come alongside and help people just navigate that whole that whole journey. So I left my job and um, about three years ago, I started Cancer Champions and that's what I'm doing today and I'm, I'm loving it. So wonderful. I also am very honored to be here with all of you. I, you know, I, I think back to when I started too about three years ago and, you know, not even knowing, you know, I'm going to put a title to this and just move forward imperfectly and to think that now we're all here collaborating you know, although the details of our stories and our whys are different, the intentionality and the heart behind it is very similar. So really, really happy to be here with all of you. So we're going to go through some questions for everybody and try to keep this as um, concise as possible. And so at, just so I keep everything straight, I might be glancing at questions because I have prepared, but I don't want to forget what I'm going to ask. So don't mind my glancing, but we're going to try to dive, dive deeper into the field of patient advocacy and specifically these ladies' amazing backgrounds. So we're going to start with Gail. Gail, I know many of us are in the sandwich generation. I included, you know, I'm taking care of my son and I'm taking care of my parents. And I think we can all share in that. And you've heard a lot of that in the background stories of all these ladies. Um, you recently blogged about how to talk 
to aging parents. Can you give our listeners kind of a, a brief overview of some of your advice on that topic? Sure. That, that blog post actually came about because I was kind of eavesdropping on a conversation where two women were discussing how one of them was trying to convince her dad to move out of the home he had been in for decades into an assisted living community. And I think that so many of us who are, you know, who have older parents who are in the sandwich generation can, can relate to that. I get so many calls from, from clients, from friends, from acquaintances, and basically it'll go something like this. I can't get my parents to do something, whether it's, you know, move, move into assisted living, um, get a caregiver in their home, discuss their end of life wishes or their financial situation. Um, personally, my challenge has been to try to get my dad to agree to use, you know, a fall alert system. Like we, we, we've all got these challenges, but when I talk to people, they have this tendency to like, you know, just expect that they're going to call their mom and say, Hey, you need to do this. And their mom's just going to say, okay, sure. And the truth is that that's not how it happens. And people also, you know, they come at it that it's a health and safety issue. And it, it often is, but really first it's a communication issue. And so that's where it gets complicated, right? You've got all the family dynamics. Maybe you have a lifetime, a mother-daughter relationship tension going on, you know, whatever it is. So some, some advice I give to people when they need to have a conversation like this with their parents is first, you know, plan for the conversation. You don't want to just bring it on your parents. And you can imagine how, how you would react in that situation. So, you know, hey, mom, I was thinking that, you know, I'd like to talk to you about your living situation. When, when is a good time? And then she's got time to prepare for it as well. Also, it's important to remember it's not one conversation. I mean, how often do you, you know, talk to your mom and say, hey, I think you should move to assisted living. And your mom says, okay, sure. Let me call a realtor now and let's start looking for a place. It's not going to happen like that, most likely. It's a series of conversations. So you have to be prepared that this is going to take some time. And you have to think, you know, think through it. And in person, if you can, it's a lot harder these days with all the challenges with COVID, with travel and, and not wanting to you know, expose parents. But you know, th these are conversations that ideally are face to face. And also put yourself in their shoes. When you're older, how will you want your kids to approach you? you know, really think through that and, and think through what it means. For the, you, you might be thinking, I'll be so much less worried if I know that mom is, is in a safe place and taken care of. But mom is thinking, this, this is where I'm going to go to die. You know, it, it's about mortality. It's about loss of independence. Um, it's about leaving the comfort of a home where you have memories of your kids growing up and, and your spouse and, you know, everything that represented your life. So it's, it's so much more emotional than just, you know, the safety issue that might be going on. If you're a family that, you know, uses humor, I, I recommend bringing humor into it. Sometimes I tell people, you know, this is kind of payback for your parents having to have the birds and the bees conversation with you when you were little, right? Um, also try to make it their decision. I think that works no matter what we're doing in life. If you can, 
make the other person feel like they've come to this decision and it's their choice, then it can, it can work so much better. You want to work together on identifying what the problems are and what the potential solutions are. You know, ask them what they want, what's important to them, what matters most to them, and then what are they willing to give on and what are you willing to give on and how can you, you know, come to this decision but really make them feel like they own it. And also remember that they're still your parents. So they deserve that respect. And, you know, sometimes my own parents will joke with me about, oh, you, you know, you think you're the parent now. But the truth is they still need to feel like they're the parent, right? And also when, pe when people can't get their parents to do what they think is right, I also remind them, just remember you can't force them to do something that they don't want to do. And this is really challenging, trying to remove the guilt that you might have or the worry about what if they fall at home you know, or something bad happens. But if you've really made that, that good faith effort and they're just not willing to go along with it and they have the capacity to make that decision, then, then you need to cut yourself some slack as well. Um, the, the bottom line is taking the time to plan for and start having these difficult conversations before there's a crisis is so important. So w once there's already been you know, a fall that lands your, your parent in the hospital or some major health issue is, is a really emotional time to be doing this. But if you can think ahead and talk about like, what do you think you would want in this situation, then you've already set some, some groundwork for when you really have to make those decisions. I think those are some really great, important points, Gail. And I know when, when we're in the sandwich generation, it's hard to bridge that gap with how we communicate to our children, you know, regardless of what age they are, and then how we communicate to our parents. And, and maybe if we just put some forethought into it rather than an immediate approach with some of the tips that you provided, I think would be really helpful because communication really is key and we can really get off the raw, you know, off on the wrong track if we, we don't think those through. So thank you so right. much for that. Thank Cheryl, you. you're next. I would love to know what you appreciate most about running your own patient advocacy business. I know, you know, having been most of us, you know, all some way we've been in the medical system and um, have not necessarily been able to do what all of what we would like to have done for our patients. Um, and so how have you been enjoying the freedom in, within your own business of doing what you think is right? Of course, within limits, we all have, you know, things that we do and don't do in the scope of practice, but how has that freedom been for you? Well, it, uh, Claudia, it's a great question um, because my, my background has been very diverse in, in the healthcare arena. So I've had the ability and the privilege of working in the um, health insurance companies with health insurance companies, long-term care, uh, discharge planners, case managers. So I, I, I saw what they were going through because they all had um, protocols and objectives that they had to meet on a day-to-day -day basis with, with every patient that they were assigned. And as you know, everyone's different. So when you're dealing with, let's say, a case manager and they're looking at discharging a patient to a rehab facility, their focus is on the length of stay. They've got so many days that the hospital is going to be paid. And so that, that's how they're being judged. So their decisions are based on um, the, what their case management department and the hospital setting is, is uh, setting for them. And so you, they, 
they are always working under and, and worrying about uh, loss of a job because they're not performing in the parameters that are given to them. On the other hand, and say insurance companies, when I worked with the insurance company, it was based on the bottom line. I mean, everything's a business. The hospitals are a business. The insurance company is a business. And the bottom line is, you know, let's be mindful of the money we're spending on each one of our members and how can we um, give them good care, but also contain that uh, financial uh, risk. So what I'm finding now as a private patient advocate, my boss is the client. I don't have to worry about retaliation if I see something and say something. Uh, I don't have to worry about job, um, my job performance. I just need to, to worry about meeting the goals and the expectations of, of my client. So it's made it so much easier because I can have those candid conversations with them. And an example would be a family um, called because their loved one was going to be discharged from the hospital to a rehab facility. They didn't feel that they were medically stable to make that transition to a lesser level of care. Of course, it was going to be a Friday, and if they, the discharge planner said, well, if you don't make a decision on where we're going to send them, guess what? We're just going to send them somewhere, which is kind of scary, and, and um, I certainly wouldn't want to be in that situation. So we talked about you know, touring other facilities and, and what questions to ask, but then the daughter said to me, is there anything I can do to stop the discharge? And I could have that conversation with them and say, you know, you can appeal the discharge. That appeal, they can't discharge your loved one, and that will give them time to stabilize. Um, and, and nine times out of 10, if that happens, what happens when they are ready to be discharged or if the, the insurance company says, no, they're, they, they're, they need to be discharged, they're medically ready. And, and what I explained to the family is what we don't want is that revolving door that we're discharging prematurely because we're focusing on length of stay versus medical stability. And once they get to that lesser level of care or they get home, which is the best place to go, they're going to stay there. So that's a successful discharge. So that, that's been um, probably the, the most rewarding part is these honest conversations that I can have and, and the fear of retaliation, loss of a position, um, is, is not, you know, in the forefront all the time. And, and when I'm working with the healthcare team, whether it's a discharge planner at the hospital on behalf of my patient, first and foremost, I let them know that I'm not working against them. I'm here to, to work with them to make their job easier. And the look on their face when I tell them that, they're like, oh yeah, sure you are. <laughs> but then when they see that collaborative approach that we have, and that the best interest, because if I'm helping them get the patient medically stable, it's going to make their job so much easier. And I'm working with the family who's hesitant about going to a skilled facility or a rehab facility. And I'm, you know, overcoming those objections and reassuring them, then that makes their job so much easier. Or you have the patient who is lying in that hospital bed, never thought that they would have to, they fell, broke their hip, never thought that they would need to be discharged to a rehab facility. And they're panic stricken. I mean, they've never probably stepped foot into a rehab facility. They don't know what it's like. So again, with my background and being able to help overcome that fear, because as a student nurse, 
from the time to I'm probably in my career, my goal has always been to take that fear from the patient. I never wanted my patient to be in fear. You know, you, they ne you never have a good outcome. But if they can relax and, and embrace and be part of those healthcare decisions um, and, and be more educated, then you, you've got a better outcome. And I don't think on the video everybody can appreciate and see, but there's a lot of bobbing heads because we're all like, yes, yes. Um, so I, I love that you put it so eloquently, Cheryl, and I know we can all resonate and appreciate that and, and we feel similarly. So I appreciate you talking us through that. All right, Amy, I would love to hear um, either a singular story, an individual story, or even just an idea of what type of transformations, I think for people who might be listening and watching who aren't as familiar with this patient advocacy um, concept and idea of, of this navigator, maybe they don't know what that might look like or what kind of transformations might be expected and how that might differ from, you know, being in a traditional medical system. So um, obviously without any, you know, PHI or, or any identifiers, but just kind of an idea of what type of a transformation has been seen in your own practice. Yeah, thank you, Claudia. Um, I can think of a particular patient that I've been working with over the last three months. Um, and I started with him um, with some issues with um, errors in his medical chart. Um, and this has been an ongoing process. And um, he is um, on a list for a potential transplant, an organ transplant. Um, there were some errors with medications. There were some errors with, um, I think, misinterpreted history when he shared a story with his provider, who was a PA. Um, and then there were errors. There were several of those types of errors. Um, and then there were some um, health literacy gaps, actually, as well. Um, he wasn't understanding um, some of the terminology that he thought was inaccurate representation as opposed to a real, just a basic lack of medical terminology knowledge. Um, I really think there's a huge gap in the health literacy. So that's an area where I was able to um, assist him. Um, so what I did, and this has been an ongoing process since I think June, um, uh, he's um, a little bit hard to reach, a little hard to communicate with, but very well researched, um, well versed with his own personal story. Um, and I think he's done a lot of um, internet reading and um, which I really appreciate. Um, so with him, I asked him to summarize nicely for me all of his concerns. I took those concerns and summarized them myself and I gave them back to him to make sure we were on the same page. Um, with that information, I made some phone calls to his provider. Um, I helped facilitate a switch from one of the providers to another provider. That was the first thing he wanted me to do. So he had been seeing a PA, um, and I think he felt a little disenchanted with that relationship. Um, and so I said, that happens. I reassured him there's no, no harm in that, no worry. You know, you don't need to worry about that or hurting somebody's feelings. Um, so I was able to facilitate his next appointment um, with his, um, with actually the head of the department. Um, he also wanted to go in three months instead of six months. So we started with that. We went back to the medical chart. We reviewed it again. I um, made some more phone calls to the practice. I connected with his physician assistant um, and we set up a time to chat. Um, and I think, um, Cheryl, like you said, you know, it's a collaborative approach. And the last thing you want to do is threaten or make you know, the providers feel like there's something they've done that's, you know, not correct or inaccurate or wrong. Um, and I think in this particular case, it was just a lack of understanding, um, probably on both sides. So I had a really um, uh, 
productive phone call with a PA um, and we connected as a as peers as well. We went through the issues. Um, we took notes. I summarized and sent them to her. She reviewed them and um, made it um, basically an addendum to the chart. Um, she made some changes in his past medical history, his surgical history, um, kind of cleaned some things up and tidied some things up. Um, and I was able to use her information, which she shared with me. I um, sent that back to him for review to make sure that he was comfortable with the process that we had gone through and also the outcome. Um, he read through it. He has no concerns with it. Um, I think he's excited now that he's, I think there's a little bit of a smoother path actually for him. Um, I'm continuing to work with him. Um, potentially he'll um, pursue a second opinion. We've discussed that. I don't know where he stands with that at this point, but um, ultimately Claudia, I think, um, his major concern was that inaccuracies in the medical record were going to prevent him from being eligible for, for a transplant. Um, and really, that really wasn't the case. And I think I allayed a lot of his fears as well um, in cleaning this up. So um, I think that was, um, it was a good case to work on. It wasn't a quick thing. Um, it's been a, a long, ongoing process. I think there's so much to highlight in that. And obviously we won't take the time to do all that, but I really appreciate that story because it, it number one, the overarching theme is communication. And, and we've all talked about that individually and on our, our caribou meetings, but the communication piece is largely, and I think that patients would agree with that too, is largely what's missing. And then specifically I have, I mean, even just in my experience with my dad, when I would, he had squamous cell carcinoma first, and then he had lymphoma. And when we would go in and they would say, okay, you've got a history of sarcoma. And I'm like, no, it's not, it's squamous cell carcinoma. But you know, my dad would have probably shook and said yes, because he doesn't know what that means. And so it's really easy for these things to just get, you know, communicated wrong, heard wrong by a staff member. Uh, and so for, to be able to clear that up and at least put him at peace knowing that his medical record is now at least accurate and we can move forward with that is, is just, it's priceless. So I appreciate you sharing that. All right, Dana, you recently shared a practical way for people to help others with cancer without needing the background of all of the medical knowledge. And I think that this is a, such an important topic because I think people do want to, to help, but they don't know how. Can you share a little bit about the Foy Bell Foundation that you have shared about on your website? I can. Thank you for asking, um, Claudia. I think the practical ways that we can offer to help are, are really bountiful out there. And I know one thing that I hear from all my clients all the time is they have such a, a, a large support group that wants to help, but they don't know how to help. So I wanted to offer just some practical ways that people can help people that are going through a, a disruptive diagnosis like cancer. And I get, I get queries all the time, and I'm sure you guys do too, from, from grassroots organizations that want to highlight um, some of the practical grassroots things that they're doing for people that are suffering with a cancer diagnosis. And one of them was Foy Bell. And Foy Bell is, um, came from being from a woman who was 33 years old, whose grandmother who had breast cancer, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at 33, triple negative, metastatic, um, and she really wanted to, to do something for people that were actively in treatment at that moment. So she started a movement um, called the Foy Bell Movement. Foy Bell was her grandmother. While she was going through treatment, people would send her these blue bags 
and they were to they were full of items that were to help her beat the blues and and she said um what did she say she says breast cancer is not a pink ribbon it's blue it makes you feel blue and so these blue bags chelsea unfortunately has since passed away but the foibel foundation continues on with you can go in and order a blue bag for somebody that you know that's going through cancer it doesn't have to be breast cancer and the patient will receive a blue bag full of items that are meant to either chase the blues away or to really help somebody get through treatment. So just practical things that Chelsea found to be really um, helpful for her while she was going through her journey. Those are the types of things that are in the blue bag. And the practicality of it comes from this, this eighth grade young woman contacted me and wanted me to help spread the awareness for Foy Bell through the website. So I, I, I said, sure. So she did a guest blog post for me. And um, Foy Bell is just one of the many, 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 many foundations and, and organizations that are out there where people that just don't know what to do for their loved one can actually have a practical thing to do. There's a couple others I would just like to mention that course. come through um, that have just been organically, Claudia, right? They organically happen from people that see a need and then want to do something for somebody. One, and I'm sure all of y'all have heard of these organizations, one of them is um, Cleaning for a Reason. And this was a, a woman who, you know, wanted to help women who were going through breast cancer and just get their house clean and not have to worry about, about that. And so she provides uh, cleaning services for women that are going through cancer and she's expanded it now to um, women that have children that are going through a cancer diagnosis and they'll come clean your home for, and that's something you can offer to a friend or a loved one. Another one is, um, I'm sure all of y'all have heard of Emmerman's Angels. And this is a way that people can give back practically. If you've been through this journey and you've come out the other side and you really want to do something practical for other people you can there's lots of cancer peer-to-peer -peer support groups either through the advocacy organizations or Emmerman's Angels where you can sign up to be a peer for somebody who is going through the same thing you've already been through and that just to speak to Cheryl and get all of y'all the fear to be able to communicate with somebody that has knows exactly what you're feeling knows exactly what you've been through and has come out on the other side that can just alleviate so much fear and give people confidence and give them just a feeling of being well supported so i think that's the practical side of what we can do besides all of the things that we as as advocates bring and all the medical knowledge and the clarity around their medical diagnosis and all of that there's so much practical support out there um, that can really 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 um add value to somebody's experience I love that you shared those additional um, organizations. And I think that a lot of people want to do something, they don't know what to do, and they feel like some of the larger well-known, you know, like giving to the American Cancer Society or some other larger organization feels too impersonal. They would like something more intimate, maybe something a little bit smaller that they can, you know, feel more engaged with. And, and so I think this gives them a lot of opportunity for that and us. And I, I absolutely am um, familiar with Cleaning for a Reason. In fact, a friend of mine who owns the local mini-made here participates in that. And, you know, it's, it, you would be shocked at 
what a cleaning of a house will do, the impact that that has on somebody. I mean, we, we all, I think, know that because we like to, you know, I think especially as women, we like to come home to a clean house. But for somebody who isn't physically able to even clean their house, to be able to know that there is cleanliness around them and that that was gifted to them is, is so huge. So thank you for sharing all of that. All right, uh, Gail, right back to you. So I would love to know what has surprised you most. So it's always really interesting to me because we, we start, you know, we all wanted to do something. So we moved forward in this way. And um, of course, you know, there's surprises around the corner everywhere, especially when you're running a business. And so I'm wondering what might've been the most surprising thing to you or um, something you weren't expecting on this path. So there's two things that come to mind when I hear that question. And one is, you know, I give a lot of presentations. I'm a community educator with Campaign Zero, Families for Patient Safety. And I give talks about, you know, taking care of your loved one in the hospital and I also have a talk about talking to your doctor, making the most of your 15 minutes. And the most common thing that people say to me after these presentations is they come up to me and they say, thank you. I now feel like I can ask my, question, I can ask my doctor questions. Because so many people felt, didn't, didn't even know that they could, apparently, or they just didn't feel confident enough. And in both those presentations, I actually give examples of questions to ask. And I make it really clear that it's okay to ask questions and that the, it's the doctor's responsibility or whatever provider to make sure that you understand. And so it really surprised me at the beginning how many people just felt like they, like they now had permission you know, to ask all those questions. The other thing that surprised me, you know, I didn't mention my background in my introduction, but I have a PhD in public health and I worked for over 20 years as a health services researcher. So very data analytical, um, you know, focusing on, on that side of things. And, you know, a lot of times I think we think about what we do, you know, what, what am I doing for someone? Am I finding them a clinical trial? Am I, finding um, the billing error? Am I resolving something? But so much what I've found is that people just want you to be there for them. You know, that, that's even more important than the doing is the being there. That people want to be listened to. They want to be able to tell their story. They want the empathy. And sometimes they just want validation that they're doing the right thing. They're on the right path. And that has been like the most rewarding part of patient advocacy is how much people appreciate just, just that, that piece of it, the, the being present for them. I think I, I often say that the most important thing I've done is being with an older woman who didn't have any family around and didn't want to quote burden her friends with her diagnosis. And so I was the one that was there with her at the appointment when the doctor said that there was nothing else they could do. And, you know, and I held her hand during that. And afterwards I hugged her and she really would have gone to that appointment alone otherwise. And so there was an, that is the most powerful thing that st has stayed with me during, during this process is just how important it is to truly be present for someone more than even the doing. I could talk for hours on that one. I love that you brought that up. And it, it actually made me, I'm, I'm like a very visual person. So I immediately started visualizing a soap note and the subjective objective and assessment and the plan, right? I mean, what, 
Right. Nobody would look at a soap note and see the plan was, I was just there today with the patient, the assessment the patient needed me to be. And the plan was, I just was, that would not be accepted in our healthcare system. You know, there, there's something to do, you know, you come in with this and my action plan is this. And while there's nothing wrong with that, because often there is something to do, there isn't any space for being. And, and I think that's where we can play a really big role. And, you know, and I, I will say, and I, and I, I try to always make sure that I mention this, that I don't think that any, anybody in the healthcare field, or at least the vast majority is wanting it to be that way. It's just a broken system. I think that if they were given the space to say, can you just be with this patient today? They probably would be happy to do that, but the system is not set up to allow for that. And so because we are not necessarily, you know, a part of that system, we have, we don't have to follow, fall in the same, um, you know, rigorous guidelines of, of what they're doing. And we can have a little bit more flexibility and freedom. We're able to do that. Um, It's not that, that, the healthcare providers don't want to. It's just that they aren't given the space to. So, right. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Gail. All right, Cheryl, in one of your blogs, you talk about polypharmacy. And as a pharmacist and having all that background, um, you know, for years, I was the, the giver of the meds or the explainer of the meds or managing the high risk medication. And that was just sort of my life. And then as I sort of started stepping away from that and realizing how much polypharmacy there, how many problems there are with that, I sort of re-shifted and refocused and started to, to think outside of that box. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that topic. Um, it, it, it is a topic that is near and dear to, my, to me as well, um, because there's so many problems that come along with multiple medications or polypharmacy. And, and people don't realize the side effects or, or what it can be doing to their quality of life by taking some of these medications. So I'll give you some examples. There was a a client of mine who um, was very frustrated. He had been on Coumadin for a warfarin for 10 years for a DVT that he suffered on a long trip. And it was a one-time event. He was put in the hospital. He was out of area. And when he went back home to his providers and year after year, he would discuss the need, does he still need this medication? Nobody wanted to even address it because they didn't prescribe it. Finally, um, when, when he did um, contact me, we discussed it, and, and I gave him some talking points to go over with his physician. Now, I understand a doctor doesn't want to step on somebody else's uh, into their arena and, and make a decision. But the question I asked is, is it still needed? I mean, you've only had one event, and... and uh, can, if you don't want to make that decision, can you send me to a specialist who can do some tests and, and come to that decision with either A, yes, you need to be on this and you need to be on it for the remainder of your life, or no, you don't. What really concerned me when he came to me was his noncompliance with his labs. His PTI and R's were not done routinely because he didn't want to go. And, and that was, to me, more dangerous than to be uh, not have this discussion with, do I need it? So something else I can take in, in, in place of the Coumadin and not have to have the labs. So that was one example. The other is when a new medication, you're at the doctor's office, and Gail, I, I 100% agree with everything that you said and everyone else, but um, in piggybacking on what you just uh, discussed, you're at the doctor's office and the doctor comes in, he has his own agenda, he 
does his assessment and comes up with, well, you need this medication and I'll send it to your pharmacy. You're still at this pharmacy. That's the question. Okay. Are you still going to this pharmacy to pick it up? No, the question should be from the patient. What is this for? What is the name of the drug? Because a lot of drugs and, and Claudia, you know, better than I being a pharmacist, that a lot of them are similar in sound. So why am I taking it? How do I take it? How long am I going to be on it? And what's the effect? When should I start seeing a result from this medication? Because if you're like me and I don't start seeing a result, I figure, oh, this isn't working. So what do you do? You stop taking it. Well, some medications, as all of you know, it takes a while to build up in your system. But if you're not knowledgeable on what to expect, you know, nine times out of 10, you, you don't, you stop taking it. You don't know the whys. People, Gail, as you, you so nicely um, stated, they're afraid to ask questions. They don't think they have the right. So I go over their patient's bill of rights with them. That They have every right to question and they have every right to say yes or no, that they agree with this decision or they don't agree with the decision. The, the problem that I see um, with the elderly population is they've been on medications, they get a side effect from the medication, they, they um, prescribe another medication to take care of that side effect, and it keeps building and building and growing and growing. And, and so as we get older, population, the conversation with the doctor should be, do I still really need this? I mean, I'm 85 years old and I'm still taking this medication. Is it necessary? Can I cut it back? Can you de-prescribe medications? This is something that I don't think the doctors have learned, <laughs> but if we don't question why we're taking it or how long we should take it, or can we get off it? Can we lower the dose? Can we lower the free, can we, you know, get step back on the frequency? Um, it, it's, it generates a conversation that when you go in, that really isn't on the top of the doctor's mind. He's there for whatever the case may be, you know, it's an annual visit or it's a three month checkup. How are you doing? You're doing good. Okay, bye. <laughs> Once a year, all medication should be reviewed either by a pharmacist or your primary care physician. And then at any time, uh, there's a change of condition, especially leaving the hospital setting. You went to the hospital because you had a problem. So they're giving you medications. Are they looking at your home medications and, and, and with the discharge medications? So you don't want to be over-medicated. So that's another time uh, that we should be reviewing the medications that we're on or they're ordering. And, and again, asking questions, do I need to take two different type of blood pressure medications? I mean, take a log with you with your blood pressure um, readings, what they've been. So if you see that they're, they're um, coming down or you get like at a certain time during the day, maybe you get a low pressure, um, that, that's a conversation that will give the doctor valuable information to decide, well, hey, you know, maybe we don't need to take this twice a day, or maybe I can reduce your dosage and let's see how it goes. But again, if we don't bring forward the, with the question, we don't get an answer and we don't get anyone looking. So that is what I found with polypharmacy is, you know, giving, empowering that patient with the tools they need to ask the right questions to get a conversation started. Fantastic. I, uh, I love that that tied really well into Gail's question. I would like to say that I thought that through to yeah. begin with, but I didn't. <laughs> I just, I think that it's really great. I, I think uh, there's so much, obviously I could say on that topic. And I, uh, yeah, I worked in anticoagulation clinics and 
doctors are not comfortable getting anybody off of warfarin, especially when they are not the ones that started it. And so, yeah, and the doing part, if we like go right back to what Gail was saying about the doing, you know, the, the plan is very rarely to stop to discontinue something unless it's, you know, an obvious short-term med, like an antibiotic or something, but it's rarely to discontinue. It's usually to add. And so, yeah, you really have to feel empowered to ask those questions and to, to find out because that list can get really long and it does. And um, the necessity of all of those should be at least looked at, like you said, at least once a year. So I appreciate all of that. All right, Amy, I would love to know your thoughts on, you know, being a PA, you know, in your previous life and, uh, you know, your experience in the medical field on the side of the PA and then now seeing the healthcare system from the side that you're on now, which is a little bit different, even though we're still working with patients, it's a little bit of a different view. What are your thoughts around, around the healthcare system and the perspective you had on both sides? Well, I think that's a, an interesting question, and it's um, a kind of a, a loaded question as well. Um, you know, I think I've seen both sides of it for sure. I mean, aside from the obvious broken healthcare system, I think you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, aside from rising costs of insurance, rising costs of health um, care, accessibility to health care, um, you know, I think those are huge issues. Um, I think that. Um, you know, I haven't, I guess I haven't really seen a shift from my perspective of um, being a healthcare advocate, but I think there's a lot of also disenchantment with providers these days too. Um, I think they're overworked, overbooked, double booked, triple booked. I mean, I've spent eight years in sports medicine and um, I sensed from all of the orthopedic surgeons that I was working with just a frustration with every five minutes they had a patient and they were sort of bouncing around with different, you know, PAs working with them as well. And I just think there was a lot of unhappiness. I think that people went into medicine generally because they wanted to help people and they cared about making a difference. I know I did, but then it becomes the bottom line. Um, you know, what are you going to be in reimbursed for this? Or you want to do a surgery, whether it's a total knee replacement or a hip replacement or something. And then you've, got to get approval from the insurance company. And then you have an insurance person that isn't the provider, but doesn't even have a medical degree calling you to discuss how, why is this necessary? Or why is it necessary to order that MRI that you ordered? Do you really need this? Um, and I think that wears heavily, um, and it wears down the provider and it wears heavily on the providers. So I think that's where that disenchantment comes from. You know, you're having to, um, kind of prove why you're ordering something all the time. Um, so there's that piece of it. I also think that, you know, I touched on it earlier. I think we've all sort of mentioned that um, basic knowledge of healthcare, that health literacy piece. And it's, you know, what is that health literacy? I mean, our patients don't understand um, whether, you know, it's the name of the medication, what the medication is used for, how to ask the questions, what are the questions? Or, you know, they don't even know what they don't know. So those are, I don't know, I think those are reasons why, you know, our healthcare is broken. And I think as a health advocate coming in, stepping into that role and really being able to educate our clients, um, break, down, um, break down the barriers to accessing care, to, um, you know, knowing that, all right, I have diabetes. This is how diabetes affects my heart, my kidneys, my eyes, um, you know, peripheral vascular disease. 
these are the medications I'm taking. Um, this is an A1C. What is an A1C? Do you know what a 7.1% A1C means in terms of your blood sugar? Those are health literacy issues that I think people don't understand. And I think when people, if we can break down that terminology, educate our clients, educate our patients so that they become, you know, more more of a player, so to speak. Um, I think their health outcomes will improve. And as we improve the health outcomes, we can also minimize the cost in, um, in you know, the long-term costs of healthcare. So I think those are areas where I'm trying to focus to make a difference in the broken healthcare system. Um, it's, you know, improving health literacy. Um, I sort of skipped from that provider disenchantment to as an advocate, you know, what can I do to make that difference for my clients. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, the, the better we feel, the, the more we know, the better we feel, um, you know, the better the outcomes in general, it saves money, saves costs, saves, saves stress. Um, so that's kind of how I was sort of looking at that broken healthcare system and how can we, you know, at least make a difference as an advocate. I really love that perspective. And uh, yeah, there's so much, so much disenchantment. And I love that, that you use that word because um, it, it sounds, it actually sounds very Disney-like, <laughs> un-Disney-like disenchanted. But, um, but I, I, I completely agree. I mean, my husband's a physician, so I see, I see it with him and his colleagues. It's, it's hard when you go into a field and you go in with a certain intention and heart and the system doesn't necessarily support you. And the visual that came up for me, I'm very visual. The visual that came up for me as you, as you talked about that is, you know, as a provider, maybe driving a car and the patient, the system being set up such that the patient might be in the back seat, but as an advocate, it's like we're both in the front seat. And sometimes that even switches, you know, the patient being the driver and we're just there to support them in the passenger seat. And so that was kind of the visual that came up for me as you were talking about that is the ability for us to, to switch that dynamic and not necessarily just be this like authoritative figure who takes the wheel, you know, and um, doesn't necessarily involve, involve the person in the backseat. So I love that. Thank you so much. All right, Dana, I would love to know how serving on the boards of organizations like Make-A-Wish and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society have helped you understand um, and get kind of a perspective on the work and research being done in the field of oncology. That's a, that's a big question. It's a good question. It's a big question. So I tried to just think about it in one piece of it. And for me, coming out of the corporate background, um, it, the boardroom felt very natural, right, for me to, to be there. I think the biggest thing it's done for me is one of, the, one, of the, one of the biggest values I think we all bring is our insights and our network. Um, and being in the boardrooms of some of these organizations, it allows me to, one, get the perspective of what they are trying to accomplish, um, but helping them see a broader perspective. Because, you know, when you're trying to do something as an organization, sometimes you can get so myopic in, in the outcome and what you're trying to accomplish that you sort of just bulldoze over things that are important. So I feel like when I'm in those spaces, I'm bringing clients with me. I'm bringing real life, practical patient concerns, patient obstacles, things that the patients are really facing um, with me. And so it helps to keep the organizers and the, the C-suite people within these advocacy groups practical and real, right? But for me, what it does is it changes the perspective. I, I do believe the system is broken, but I, I do 
at my core believe that these organizations for the most part are still trying to do good and they're still trying to um, advocate for for people that are facing cancer and so it gives me the perspective of what they're trying to do so i can educate the public as to what these organizations really are about and i find that with some of my clients the skepticism around a lot of these things because the healthcare system is a little bit broken it helps me to really be able to reassure them that everybody's not out to get them and not everybody's out to scam you and not and they are some really good organizations that are providing so much more than just their treatment options you know in the way of foundation and financial support and and peer-to-peer -peer support and so i think what it does is it it allows me to bridge that gap between what corporate is trying to do and what's really happening on the ground level with our clients. That's the biggest thing. And the second thing for me is just the insights that I gain from being inside and inside those conversations and hearing just sort of the thoughts. And it helps me to see a problem, maybe a way that I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't heard the entire context. So it gives me a lot of insight and it also gives me connections. I mean, I have connections and builds my network with people that can actually help me help my clients because now I've established a personal relationship with people and that can only benefit. So those are the, those are the high level things for me as um, what's helped me from, from serving in that way. And it is also a way for me to give back and some of my volunteer back into the community through, through my board service. I think that's so fantastic. That's why I wanted to ask you. I think it's great that you serve on the boards of those organizations because I, I know I've talked to patients who there is a lot of skepticism of anything that's that big. You know, it's like big pharma, big this. And, and I get it. I understand that from their perspective, that it does seem like, well, nobody's helping. You know, I don't, the advances aren't working, you know, and um, so why aren't these big entities giving us more options? Um, and I love that you're able to bridge that gap and bring the, the big entities right down to the trenches with what's actually going on. So that's a, such an important role that you play. And I appreciate that you do that and that you're able to bring that to us as well. All right, ladies, we ended right at 1200. I couldn't have planned that any better, <laughs> at least on the East Coast time. So I so appreciate each and every one of you coming here today and sharing your insights. I hope that our listeners and watchers at least got a little bit of a more in-depth perspective on what patient advocacy is and where we're heading. And again, like I said, there'll be a few more upcoming and including one with the founders of Hair Boost. You'll get to know a little bit more about that. But thank you all for joining me, ladies. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you. Claudia. What an absolute honor it was to interview these ladies on the important work that they do with their patients every single day. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found value in starting to learn more about the field of patient advocacy. And I look forward to bringing you more from this three-part series. I'll see you here again next time.